All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. 9.30, we've uh, got a lot to cover today. Uh, I want to welcome everyone to a special session of the Lawrence Douglas County Planning Commission Subcommittee on Wind Energy Regulations. Um, this group is tasked with uh, writing the regulations governing wind, wind energy in uh, Douglas County. Um, uh, while today's meeting is public and recorded, um, it's a, considered a working session, so we're not asking for comments or questions from the public today. We have worked in advance of this to capture the, the questions and the thoughts in the community, and we're gonna work our best to reflect those here tonight. There are cards tonight, today. There are cards uh, back on the back near the door. If you have a question, a comment, um, something you'd like us to follow up on, uh, please jot that down and leave that with us. Sandy's got that there if you want, and pins. And if you want a, a direct follow-up, leave an email or a phone number, and I'll make sure that uh, we contact you with uh, information back on what you've asked for. Um, Today we welcome uh, two people um, that have expertise um, in this field associated with wind energy. Uh, Dr. Chris Olson, Oops. you are, how do you describe yourself? So. The way I describe myself, I've got a PhD in environmental health sciences. And for the last 25 years, 20, 25 years, um, I've been private practice as a consultant and I also teach at the University of Toronto. So I'm out of the Toronto area in Canada. And when I started my career, it was all contaminated sites, air quality issues, I've done a lot of work in oil and gas over the years, refineries, incinerators and the like. And about 15 years ago, the whole notion of renewable energy, wind turbines, <coughs> as it was kicking in here, you know, in, in Kansas, right around North America, got brought into the question of, you know, well, do wind turbines, in this case we're talking about wind turbines, you know, can you properly sa safely site them in communities without having adverse health effects and public safety issues? So I spent the last 15 years researching as well as then spending a lot of time in communities. I've worked right across Kansas for over 10 years. I believe it's 43 projects now you folks at the CAV up. I've, I was counting them up last night. I've worked on 13 of them. And so okay. counties right across Kansas and doing similar things that we're doing here today, talking about, you know, ordinances, regulations, how should, uh, you know, counties go about doing those, as well as then, of course, talking about specific projects. And Mr. Mark Bastach. Could they put their microphones a little closer? Oh, you bet. Are we, are we... Uh I don't think we're projecting. <clears throat> we're not amplifying in the room? Yeah, we are. Okay. Yes, we can. Thank you. <laughs> sure. By the way, guys, that'll be uh, something we just have to keep in mind. Uh, yeah, is this? We're right close to each other, and we won't really necessarily think. All right. Very, very good. Hopefully this is good enough. Um, so Mark Bastash, I'm an acoustical engineer and board certified by the Institute of Noise Control Engineering. Uh, I focus on... Uh, acoustical assessments for a variety of infrastructure projects, including renewable energy. I sit on several standards standards committees, whether it's uh, ANSI, IEC, ISO, uh, and uh, I'm a working group organizer with the Acoustical Society of America uh, for their S12.9 series of, of standards as well. Okay. So I've been working in this field for yeah. a number of, number of years, obviously. Indeed, indeed. So appreciate that. Um, just one last thing, just for absolute transparency, what is your relationship with NextEra for both of you? So I was retained by NextEra to attend uh, last night's meeting and today's meeting. Uh, they're one of many clients that I, that I yeah. work with. 
Okay, great. And you? Yeah, similarly. I, uh, again, independent consultant and academic. So in this case, I uh, was at the meeting last night for NextEra. And candidly, do quite a bit of work with NextEra. They've asked me to you know, come and appear in front of you folks today. And I think it's important to know that you know, you're looking at a regulation, and we understand it's not for one company. This is a regulation that's going to govern the entire county, and then whether it's NextEra or it's any other company. But certainly, like Mark, do a lot of work within the industry as well as some of the government sure. agencies. Appreciate that. Um, I want to be clear um, that while you have been hired by NextEra, that the purpose of this conversation, um, we're not going to be talking about NextEra. We're Absolutely. not going to be talking about any, any specific developer, yep. any specific project. What we are hoping for is the opportunity to visit with experts in the field and to ask questions in a more general nature that helps us bring that information back to decisions we would make in those regulations. We're not here today to talk about what the setback should be. That's that fair. Whatever you folks want to discuss. Appreciate that. 100%. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. So if I can, we've got a lot of material. I just want to dive in. Um, and I've got a set of questions, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of lead through um, a set of things and maybe some themes, and my partners. And you might, you guys probably don't know who we are either. <laughs> we met a couple of you earlier on, but yeah, that'd be, that'd be great, Commissioner. If you, you, go if you guys want to introduce, that'd be great. I was going to say, so I'm Charlie Thomas, right. one of the people on the Planning Commission. And on this subcommittee. And on, and yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, I just wandered in. I heard there was food and coffee. Yeah. <laughs> wandered in, and nobody kicked me out. Same with me. And I'm Gary Rexrode, uh, Planning Commission on the subcommittee as well. Uh, I'm Prashant DeVore, and on the Planning Commission as well. How about... Uh, uh, Sandy Day Planning. We're a, a staff member, and we're just really kind of here to listen. This is the subcommittee's meeting. Way, also planning. Yeah, way more than that. You guys have <laughs> been working on this for a very, very long time. Without this, and anyway, thank you. you. You had a few county staff walk in as well, so they're all right in the back. All right, very good. But they're here. Great. Charlie, thank you for that. Yes. Thank you. All right, jumping in. Um, I'm going to be talking about questions that may be specific to sound, but may also have environmental edges. And I'd ask you guys to, between the two of you, help us get to complete answers. Concise, quick, as, as reasonable, right? Mm -hmm. And plain language as, as reasonable so that we can get through as far as we can. I'd like to start with a, a basic question. Um, what are the various sounds that come from a wind turbine? Sure. So the, the predominant sound would be aerodynamic in nature. So how the sound of the blades rotating through the wind would, would, uh, would generate sound. That's an aeroacoustic phenomena. Mm -hmm. There can also be some sound associated with mechanical systems. Um, that tends to be uh, controlled. So the aerodynamic sound um, would be dominant. And again, there can also be some sound associated with the yawing mechanism, when, and the yawing mechanism is uh, how the turbine would rotate in and out, right. uh, left the, and right. The nasal moves. You got it, right. exactly. So that, that can occasionally uh, have some, uh, some audible sound. So aerodynamic and mechanical, um, the generator probably is a part of that. that yeah, that would component. be kind of the, the mechanical within the nacelle. Usually the nacelle will have um, 
acoustical treatments of some sort to minimize the radiation of the mechanical noise. And again, that's why we generally... Inside the shell of the nacelle? You, you got it. And its construction? Okay. That's right. So there'll be some cooling systems associated with that and some fans associated with that. And you generally would see some silencers or acoustical louvers or, or other uh, treatments to help minimize the uh, interior nacelle sound from escaping from the nacelle. Is that analogous to noise canceling technology or is that a that would be a little bit less a little bit different. Yeah, so the the noise canceling technology or anti-noise the kind of the things you see in a Bose headphones type situation or in some vehicles um, that works well in kind of confined spaces like that. It generally is is not used in uh, industrial it really only works at reception not at source yeah that's right that's right, right. Okay. um how about just the tower itself just the presence of the tower itself outside the aerodynamic um sounds you might get of the rotor in motion does is there sound from that the wind impacting that not a tree you know a tree if you hear a tree in the wind yeah well a tree in the wind that, yeah that's right um well trees generally will have the leaves associated with them and so you'll get some of that wind induced rustling sound a tower by itself kind of being a, a larger round object um, maybe if it's really windy you would hear something if you were standing close to the tower uh, in that regard but it's not something that i've seen propagate or or be a focus right so clicking into this one further um would you describe then from these various sources the full spectrum sounds that um, you could expect from a wind turbine both in frequency and amplitude what what do you see? Certainly. So we would generally characterize it as a broadband sound. So it has uh, low frequency components, mid frequency components, high frequency components. Uh, it, it, um, in terms of amplitude, uh, it would, it, it can vary somewhat depending on the make and model of the turbine. Uh, generally speaking, if you're at the base of the tower, it's going to be uh, below. Uh, below 60, 65, you can have a normal conversation, more or less, right in the vicinity of of, of the project of, of the 65 decibels. decibels. Yep. A normal, for reference, a normal conversation at three feet, or you know, unamplified conversation right here, outside of this. Outside of this would be 60, 65, and you can generally have normal conversations, you know, in and around, uh, very close to to the turbine, it's not something that when you're outside that you need hearing protection for or, or anything along those lines. And then maybe one component, Mark, is the infrasound as well, that you, you talked about low frequency, but there's also an infrasound component. Yeah, I would characterize uh, infrasound or, or can would be the, the component that is generally considered less than 20 hertz. So that low frequency would generally be 20 to 200 hertz. It's kind of, you know, there's some different ranges there. Mm -hmm. Infrasound is generally considered something below 20 hertz. Um, infrasound can be measured from, from wind turbines. It's generated from wind turbines, generated from rotating machinery. Uh, and it can be detected with very sensitive equipment uh, at, at, at some distance. But though it's, it's generally of a, mag well, it is of a magnitude from this source that is, is really does not approach audibility and really has. Uh, okay, I'm gonna click into infrasound yeah, just figured. a little bit. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> um, going back to 
the subject on full spectrum, I'm curious about things that um, might affect that, that might make that more variable. So what are, what are some of the circumstances that'll change sound that's generated? And you know, a couple come to mind are, you know, do, do the age of parts impact things, age of rotors? Um, uh, let me stop there. What are the various things that can cause things to change from a brand new turbine that you set up to the one that we live with five years later? Well, generally speaking, it's, you know, you're going to have operation and maintenance that is mm -hmm. conducted on these systems because they want to keep them in good working order and, and whatnot. Obviously, if you have some sort of uh, bearing or, or motor imbalance or whatnot, uh, that could result in an upset condition and some, some characteristics that one would want to, to remedy because they would want to fix a bearing issue or, or whatnot from, a, from a, an operational perspective, right? Anything that kind of affects the airfoil on the blade, so if there's any sort of blade damage, uh, because the aeroacoustic uh, nature of the sound generation uh, is, is, is it's, you know, it's a, kind of a complex phenomena, but basically if you had damage to a blade or anything build, uh, build up on a blade, that can change the, the <coughs> characteristics. And again, generally speaking, it's going to be in the companies or the, the interest to, to remedy those because that always would have a production impact as well, typically. And, and maybe just to add to that as well is about wind speed and how sound increases to a certain point of wind speed, Mark, from the turbines? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I don't know if you, do you want to, do you understand or do you want have questions about the generation profile? Sure, please. So. Turbines will um, generate power from a cut-in speed all the way up to a cut-out speed. Uh, the, at, at low wind speeds, the turbines will kind of freewheel, and they're not really generating power. There's not enough wind to generate power, but they're rotating right. very slowly. Like and three then, meters per second, something like that? Yeah, yeah. that's right. And then it will um, engage the generator and synchronize with the grid and continue to generate power with increasing wind speed. The sound level will increase with increasing wind speed up to a certain point, and then the sound level tends to plateau. So at higher and higher winds, uh, you're not seeing more sound. You're, you, it, it's kind of reached its plateau. That tends to be 10 meters per second, kind of plus or minus. It will vary on a couple of right. conditions. For those keeping track at home, um, you want to convert meters per second to miles per hour. I think it's 2.25 yeah. meters miles per hour per meter per second. That's right. right. Yeah. That's okay. Right. Um, so that, what you just said is super interesting. Um, so the sound, aerodynamic sound from rotor peaks at some point even though wind speed has gone up. So if and I've, I've got a line of thought in here, but so what, I, what I, I had made an assumption, sounds like it's incorrect, that there was a linear progression of both ambient wind and aerodynamic sound. The higher the ambient, when the higher the wind speed, that ambient sound would go up in an almost linear way. And you're saying that's not the case. So the, in terms of the turbine sound, uh, it is more or less linear to a point and then it would plateau. 
Okay, so, so turban contains nasal and rotor. So help me understand which piece you're talking about when you say uh, all together. All, all together. Okay. All together. So when we so there's a there's an international standard for determining the sound level uh, from wind turbines, and that is called the IEC 61400-11. It's a standard to address uh, what's called the, the sound power level of the turbine. That is determined at integer wind speeds uh, for basically from cut in to almost cut out or you know an upper range. And what you see in that profile is um, if you have wind speed along your x-axis and sound level along your y-axis, you would see a slope, and then you would generally see a plateau. And what's, gen what's generally happening is that as the wind speed continues to increase, the RPM, the rotations per minute of the, the blades increase, then you reach a point at which you've reached your maximum RPM. And it's designed by the equipment. Okay. And it can still operate above and then higher wind speeds all the way up to its cutout wind speed, but, but it, won't. it doesn't keep spinning faster. That's right. Yeah. So there's, a, there's an RPM max well, that gets there, a hit. Isn't there a resistance-like quality to that? So you're, 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 you're feathering the blades then at that point? To you're letting more. Yeah, that's right. So they would... They would um, adjust the pitch of the blades because they don't need to capture as much of that wind. Okay. And, and I think, Commissioner, one of the things that's important within all of this discussion and what Mark was saying with the 61400-11 standard, in order to be able to predict then, you know, if you do have a project coming to your community after you set your regulations, whatever you set your sound regulation at, the way that they use, the way that the engineers like Mark um, are able to predict in future, what will be is they use the 61400 data that are provided by the wind turbine manufacturers specific to that machine that gives you that profile, that cut in and cut out speed, and then the, the maximum sound power level that'll come for the turbine. And that's all just, you know, it's available information and it's done under um, very strict international guidelines. Gotcha. Thank you. Yeah. Um, is it okay if we, you guys want to? interject anywhere want to keep going we're going to talk about infrasound later. i'll go in there right now yep. <laughs> right. i'd like to click into that if i could um and by the way uh you'd use the term cut in and cut out i think i understand that to mean um independent of, of the rotors turning cutting in means you've engaged the the generation component of the nasal and cutting out means <clears throat> it's stopped and it can stop on the high end or the low end right yeah, cut in would <clears throat> cut out would generally be kind of the maximum wind speed at which beyond they would lock About out. Seven miles an hour, is that right? Three meters per second. But that would be cut in. That's cut, cut in. For cut in. That would be cut, the, cut, the cut out. The maximum wind speed would be you know, 50, 50, 60, 50, 60 miles, miles per hour. hour. Kind of depends on. And that's not just gusting, that's like a constant, you know. Right. And so very rarely do you actually get to that cut out speed. Yeah. Um, you know, the winds, you know, as you know, aren't sustained even at then that level. Of their, you know, that's a very high sustained wind speed. Right. So so let's click into a little bit on um, infrasound. Um, and I guess I'd just like to ask you just in general, um, not specific to um, wind turbines, but just in general, talk about how you define infrasound. You've given it in, the, in, a, in a frequency range, but also in terms of its general health 
effect. So sure, I can I can take that. I mean, as Mark described, infrasound when we're any sound, right? We're measuring it on a hertz scale, and you know, for example, middle. If you're to strike the middle C key on your piano, you're at about what 200, give or 200 ish hertz. You know, somewhere in 200, 220, something like that. As you go down in that frequency in the Hertz range, you're getting into things like, you know, if you're in, if you guys were driving over in your trucks to your cars and you had the bass just thumping for some reason, whatever your favorite song is with a lot of bass in it, that's not low frequency sound, right? So that's getting into the lower frequencies. Still that, above 20. Still above 20. And then you get into a component of sound, which we typically refer to as infrasound, and as Mark said, below 20 hertz. The reason we call it infrasound, the reason why we characterize it at that sort of 20 hertz and below, is that in most and typical environmental conditions, regardless of the source, it's below the level at which our human ears can hear for the, mo for the most part. So what you're looking at is, so right now in this room right here, there is infrasound in the room. There was, you know, a, a good example of infrasound that you can hear, for example. So you know when you're in your car and somebody's got a window open a little bit and the other one and then you get that imbalance and you've got that kind of, you know, that you hear from the windows being open, that's actually audible infrasound. There's a low frequency component to that, but that's actually getting to the point where you're so high in the infrasound range that you can actually hear it. So there are a few examples where you can do that. That hurts. But, that and, and right. And so what we're dealing with with wind turbines, so the first thing is I want to emphasize, this is a component of turbines. There's no question. And we've known about, you know, uh, you can measure it, you can monitor it if you want, and, and certainly Mark has, and I've been involved in a number of research projects where that's been the case. Around the world, we've researched this and you know, and the like. And what it is is that you're quite simply, whether you're standing at a thousand feet from the turbine, <clears throat> a couple hundred feet from a turbine, you're well below the audibility sound, or sorry, audibility level of infrasound in the environment, so from the turbine. And from a health perspective, can infrasound cause health effects? It can, but it has to be at extremely high levels. As you said, when you know when you're in the car and that, and it's, we're now talking it's amplitude. And yeah, it is. And so we're talking in that in that range when you're in your car and you're you're getting that kind of level. We're in the kind of hundred plus um, decibel range of the infrasound that's causing that. When we're down standing and measuring below the turbines, we're in levels typically in the 50 to 65 range. The audibility range is about 85 to 90, depending on which agency you talk to. And when you look at the, the vast literature on infrasound and health effects, what you're talking about is having to you know, typically be above 120 decibels, 100 to 120 decibels on that amplitude side before we start seeing those effects. Both you can take grad students and in fact one of the first infrasound studies on uh, you know, human effects was done at the University of Toronto where I teach back in the late 70s. Back then, you know, a little, little more lax guidelines on what you could do with grad students than you can today. And you subject, you know, grad students being in the lab, being in a sound lab, to very high levels, audible levels, levels of infrasound you can hear. And you get into things like, you know, cognition problems, you know, you start getting headaches, you know, you have a hard time focusing. But these are levels that are far, far above what we see, you know, in every, here in the room, in, the, in what you would be experiencing from the turbines. So yes, it occurs from the turbines, well below a health concern level. Okay. A couple more questions on infra. Thank you, by the way. Very sure. thorough um, explanation. Before you... <clears throat> I think you were the one last night that said <clears throat> there's lots of misinformation Absolutely. out on the internet. Um, I have certainly looked at a lot of things on the internet. <clears throat> How would I distinguish this misinformation 
from what you were saying? Sure, absolutely. And it's a good question for anything we're looking up on the internet, right? And so what I always tell people is, you know, when you're generally searching for these things on the internet, you're not going to go to our scientific databases and read the, you know, the very technical papers. And maybe you will, some might. But, you know, if you look at, for example, the, uh, there's a German state, Baden-Württemberg, so, you know, similar to Kansas, like, you know, in Germany, one of their states, they did a study back in around 2016 or so, where they then published their report, they published the information there in a manner in which people can, you know, readily access and, and read. And it's from there that you can see working with their health department and their environmental department, they, they conducted this very comprehensive study. And in their words, you know, paraphrasing now, we're certainly happy to provide the community with a copy of that report and, and the fact sheet is that, you know, the, both the environmental agency working with the health department and the health agency, so the equivalent to the Department of Health, here is that they came to the conclusion that yes, you can measure it. No, it's well below a level that would pose health concerns. One of the, the famous sort of where I would quote as misinformation on the internet for infrasound is there's a woman named Dr. Alvis Pereira out of Portugal that has coined the term vibroacoustic disease. And she purports that living around wind turbines and will the infrasound from the turbines will cause everybody to become sick. And then if you look at, you know, so how do you figure out, you know, well, do we believe Chris? Do we believe Dr. Alvis Pereira? How do you do? When you look at tribunals and hearings that have occurred across North America, for example, in South so you folks do it at a local level. If you look at South Dakota or North Dakota or New York, they, of course, have a state, an overarching state process, which is a lot more formal when you're in an application, cross-examination by lawyers and the like, and then ultimately the, the Public Services Commission puts out a report and decides who was, who, whose information they thought was, was more closer to the truth. And that's where we see things like Dr. Elvis Pereira's work, you know, been tested by courts, by tested by medical agencies, and found not to be accurate. Okay. One of the, the things in all the literature that I have looked at says that um, humans and animals all react differently. What you might react to, I might react to, somebody else might react to is different. Is that a fair statement? So, so a little bit. Um, let's, let's start with some of the, you know, if we back up to the animals versus humans versus whichever, even in noise experiments and when we're getting into to significant issues on noise related health effects, we do start with the animal models. So you'll take rat, so for example, the majority of infrasound research to figure out what is actually the threshold beyond which you can have, you know, ner neuro nerve damage, you can have heart, you know, conditions and the like, we use that on rats because we don't. Unless you're a graduate. And, and exactly. Yeah. I was going to say, and, and in Toronto in the 70s, we're quite there. But you, so we do that because the animal models, whether we're talking about uh, chemicals or we're talking about noise, react very similarly. In terms of you know people reacting differently, it is true. I mean, not necessarily the infrasound, but if you think about you know just the sound we hear, we usually refer to it as audible sound on the DBA scale, right? So everything. So whenever you're just talking about sound in everyday life, it's on the DBA scale. It's our human hearing. We all hear differently. I'm a very poor example of you know putting somebody out in the field and saying, you know, can you hear that? Because I'm actually partially deaf in both ears. I hear a lot differently than some of you folks. We all hear, and then we have people that are noise sensitive. And so when we're looking at any noise source and you're trying to regulate any noise source, you are looking at that spectrum of people. So we're not regulating based on Chris's hearing because that'd be a really bad idea because you'd have a lot of people. Also, the children and elderly hear differently, right? Elderly, you know, as you get older, the frequencies in which you hear shift. That's why our hearing aids are designed to pick up certain frequencies and not. 
as you get older, you know, you tend to be in a room and if, if people are talking and you get that loud or sorry, that low rumble, again, more of a low frequency, it's hard to discern conversations. So when we're looking at any noise regulation, we want to make sure we're capturing that spectrum of people and not just the average or the typical. Because one of the, I shouldn't say one, a couple of the articles that I, I read, uh, and I have heard of the lady you're talking about, um, said that more equipment needs to be developed to accurately tell what the effects are. Is that a, where would you be on that? So where I would start with that, so Mark, you know, Mark and people like Mark and his team, they're, they're measuring infrasound, and then I'm going to turn it over to Mark in a second. Measuring infrasound is not an everyday thing that anybody can go out and do. You do need some of the specialized equipment that Mark can talk about in order to get down that level. So one is the measurement side, but in terms of the actual detecting health effects, we'll get to that for a sec. So maybe just quickly on the, on how do you, can you measure infrasound and can you get down to those levels? Sure. So, it, measuring any sound is is possible, and we can measure it with very sensitive equipment. When you start looking at the lower frequencies and into the infrasound range, it becomes a little bit more challenging because what you're trying to measure is also kind of generated or influenced by the environment you're in, so wind blowing on a windscreen and whatnot. So you have to develop techniques that minimize this con contamination, for lack of a better term. So there's uh, specialized windscreens that can be used for this. You can mount, mount the equipment at ground level to be out of the wind as much as possible. You've got uh, specialized sound level meters that have been developed to do this. The Japanese looked at this in quite some detail um, and developed a special, a specialized sound level meter to, to do so as part of their, their, their research in this topic and developed specialized windscreen. So we certainly can measure and detect it and, um, and under, um, good measurement techniques and good measurements uh, systems, you can, you can kind of see that signal uh, of, of the blade pass frequency, which would be in the infrasound range uh, at, at quite a distance. Uh, but as Chris was indicating, the magnitude of that, the amplitude, is, is quite low. We just have very sensitive equipment that can pick it up. And in terms of the health studies, I, mean, I would dis respectfully disagree with some of my colleagues on the internet that we need better testing and better uh, sensitivity on infrasound. This is something that's being studied for you know, 60, 70 years, been published on in peer-reviewed scientific journals. We know a lot about infrasound and what levels it takes and causes to get up there. Um, often we will be accused of, you know, there's this notion of if you can't hear it, it's not going to hurt you. And I absolutely subscribe to that. The most sensitive health endpoint for infrasound is audibility. So if it's below a level that you can hear on the infrasound range, like specifically just the infrasound, it's below a level that we know will cause health effects. Yeah. You get above that, then yes, bad things can happen, but that's not where we're in the environment. And probably the best example of infrasound and why you know, we're comfortable saying that is that we have a colleague in Europe named Fitz Vandenberg, and he will tell you that you know the infrasound, if, if this was a problem on infrasound and health effects, just simply walking or running down the street would cause those health effects because you've got that much infrasound being generated. But just to be clear, you've said that infrasound, regardless amplitude, if you can't hear it, there's no harm. That's right. So, so agree the, with that? 
Yeah, the threshold uh, for for infrasound tends to be substantially higher than what we see in the wind turbine world. Yeah. Okay. Re regardless of source. Regardless of source. You're saying yes. in infrasound frequency lower than 20 um, hertz at any amplitude. No, no. Sorry. As the so at the so. Below 20 hertz, you have to cross a certain amplitude. You have to cross a what certain threshold. And again, in, so we measure, or sorry, we report um, infrasound typically on what's called the dBG scale. And then it's the audibility on that scale it tends to be either, depending on the international agency, somewhere between 85 dBG to 90 or 95 dBG. How does dBG differ from dB, dBA, or LEQ? So do you want to maybe talk about how you guys measure on just the DB linear and then how we scale it? Or do you it's probably Yeah, I can give a, a general discussion. Um, so there's different weighting scales. It's a little bit of the alphabet soup of, of, right. of decibels that you right. probably have seen. Um, and, it, and it can be confusing. Um, you've got uh, the A weighting which was developed to mimic the response to the human ear. Uh, and so it de-emphasizes the low frequency sounds and the very high frequency sounds to mimic the, the human ear's response to typical environmental sounds. You have... So when you say that DBA, does that really then only consider things between is it 20 and whatever the high end is in terms of frequency and it just doesn't consider the rest? Well, it can consider the rest and it just has much more substantial weighting. So if you look at a curve, the curve, ah, the curve, it's just, it's discounted by a larger and larger amount, the lower frequency you get. So you can have an gotcha. A-weighted level gotcha, that, gotcha. that go to 16, eight Hertz or whatnot, but the weighting on a bell is, is yeah, is you're starting, you're getting, it's very similar. It's okay. kind of a, a humped curve. I'm going to just see if I could pull, pull it okay. up here. Just um, and then you've got, um, a DBC scale, which, uh, is a, tends to be a flatter curve in the low frequency range. Uh, so it doesn't discount that as much. Okay. And that would mimic more or less the human ear to very loud sounds and it's sensitivity to, to very loud sounds because our hearing sensitivity changes with amplitude. Um, and so that would tend to flatten out and then it will, and then it also will tend to drop towards the, the very low sounds. I, I don't know exactly the magnitude of, of that. And then the DBG scale, uh, I think he's gonna try and bring it up, is a little bit more of a pyramid type scale, and I wanna say it peaks at, uh, at 10 hertz. So it's got uh, a, 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 slow, a rising slope in terms of its weighting, and then it would, at 10 hertz, it would start to drop. So it's kind of focused on lower end. The, the, low, the lower end of, of things. Gotcha. And so... Um, I'm not sure I heard the answers. And Gary asked you, did you agree that if you can't hear a sound, it cannot hurt you? Or infrasound? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, I, there's no evidence that I'm aware of that would that would support that uh, that low-level infrasound infrasound that is below the hearing threshold is uh, is is damaging okay. or harmful. So I want to bifurcate just a little bit um, in health and environment regards infrasound sure. and pile on to the question of Charlie's as you've answered back in terms of of impact and does it does it hurt you um, 
you've used examples like um, you know headache or something else, some some physical something that you know is is, is maybe a little bit more pronounced. I'm curious to to talk about at what levels can these um, these sounds at whatever frequency and at what amplitudes begin to affect sleep? Sure, and so let's back away from infrasound for a bit, okay? okay. Um, if, if you just go with my premise that the infrasound is below a level that will cause sleep disturbance, any of the other health effects from turbines, we talk about- I don't the broad, totally accept that. Okay, no, no, I, I, so I'm just saying for now, just, just go with me for a bit here. Because the way that, and the reason why is the research that we've done around the world, so there has been research done, you know, in, the biggest study was done in health by Health Canada in, started in 2012 to 2014. Most of the research was published in 2016. Um, there's, the Australians have done a number of sleep studies. There's been Europeans, there's been, you know, right across the world, you know, over the last 20 years. And all of those studies, um, focus on the DBAs, the sound that we hear. And the reason why is because that's the sound that will disturb our sleep. So, to, Commissioner, to your question, so what level or what sound from turbines will disturb sleep? When we look at that research, whether it's Health, so Health Canada, their studies went up to 46 decibels just because they didn't have turbines at, uh, at sound levels higher than 46. The way that they're 46 and the equivalent to how sort of the modeling works in the US would be about 48 decibels. So let's, let's be in the kind of 45 to 50 decibel range. There was no disturb, they, they were not able to see disturbance on people's sleep, whether it would be through questionnaires of 1,200 plus people living around turbines, both close and far away, as well as what they did was they did uh, for the first of its kind study where they actually had um, sleep studies of people in their homes living around turbines. They fitted them out with what's called an actimeter. Looks an awful lot like an iWatch or you know a Fitbit or whatever you have. And while you're sleeping, it measures your rotation. You're waking up, you know, getting up to go to the washroom. So when we look at consistently at these studies, whether they be done by the uh, Canadians, the Europeans, um, the uh, Australians, just recently published a series of studies um, in the last year or so that consistently we're actually not seeing sleep disturbance from people living around wind turbines. And either self-reported by the time you look at the, the data close and far, as well as um, in sleep studies and labs. So they'll bring people in, grad students typically, but others. Um, sometimes it's people who actually live near turbines and live further away. Bring them into a sleep study control room and then have them sleep for a couple nights in, that, in the sleep study and subject them to wind turbine sounds that they would be experiencing at their home if they live within certain distances. So, you know, with whether it's sleep and then there's a, a cascade of other health effects that we've been looking at for the last 20 years that you know we want to determine whether or not living in proximity to turbines causes those health impacts. Cardiovascular disease, migraines, um, all sorts of things we've been examining. And again, very consistently, regardless of which country, which study, if it's done properly by credible medical agencies or professors, researchers at the university and openly published in the literature, we're just quite simply not seeing those health effects that people can be concerned about. We take those concerns seriously. It started back around around uh, 15 years ago where those concerns started coming up as renewable energy became more prominent on the landscape. Have, uh, in your experience uh, for both of you, and, and maybe it's sound specific, um, what kind of sound sensitivities um, have you seen in, in different individuals? 
I, I, I think it, it tends to be just audibility and, and whether folks um, are reacting to, to, to the audibility. I, I can't say that I've experienced folks with unique sensitivity or have interacted with folks with, un, with unique sensitivity. I think people's reactions vary and they, they vary for a variety of reasons. Some of them are acoustical and some of them are non-acoustical. Yeah, and in the studies that are done, one of the first questions that's asked in, in these surveys of, of multiple, usually it's more than 100 questions that they're asking people to respond to, one of them is they ask you to rate your noise sensitivity. And we, we do see typically, if you were to pull everybody in this room, we're not going to, but if we were to pull the give or take, let's call it 50 people in the room, um, at least uh, two or three would likely tell us that they believe that they're noise sensitive. So not, not that we're discounting that, it's just they will self-report as being noise sensitive. And so that subset or subpopulation of those reporting to be noise sensitive are often a big focus on these health studies to see if being noise sensitive then correlates to potentially sleep disturbance and others, and quite simply it doesn't, even with those reporting to be noise sensitive. One of, did you have something? Yes. <laughs> Gary was saying, did I have something to say? Yes. Uh, a, a lot of the studies on sound that I read, um, so I'm glad you're here, are full of gobbledygook numbers and uh, various and sundry formulas. What about pure tone? Tell me where that fits in. So tonal tonal noise can be characterized a couple of different ways. Uh, a pure tone in North America tends to be divided in and evaluated on a third octave band basis. So if you take if you take your f spectrum of twenty to ten thousand hertz, or you, you don't you can you can do third octaves all the way down to one hertz if you if you want to. Um, they break those down into chunks. Um, and the the width, the bandwidth of those chunks uh, changes with 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 frequency. That so you know I don't have them memorized, but you know, picking at a thousand hertz being the center band, uh, you would have a third octave band that goes somewhere down to 850 to say 1200, and then that would be a, a, a that would all the sound energy within that frequency band. Would would be summed up. I think I'm beginning to understand why. Yeah, it's it's so, so I, it, it, it's a bar. Ch think of it as a bar chart. So you have a bar chart of um, of sound levels, and you look at the the spectrum or the shape of that bar chart. If you have one bar that sticks up substantially higher than the other neighboring bars, that would be considered a, a pure tone. Uh, and that pure tone can be defined based on uh, the third octave band bar charts, or you can define it on individual, each individual frequency. The, the, uh, the bandwidth or the size of the bar uh, can vary depending on analytical technique. It gets very complicated very quickly, and my eyes are but, yeah. but, but, but commissioner, but let's let's try spike. let's try to do it this way. Just just for a sec, commissioner. So maybe because when you're reading about this, and why are you reading about tonal? So maybe you know, Mark, can you give an example of a of a sound that would be considered like a t that has a tonal quality to it, like a substation or what, something like that? before you do that? Yeah. So. I think all of us have looked at other um, states that what are their regulations mm -hmm. 
And I see in New York, it looks like that is a prime factor when I look at the regulations that New York has. So just as without making it something that I might understand again, why is that in there that New York thinks that is so important that it is regulated? Tones increase audibility. So if you have uh, a, a, a tone that is prominent, you will hear it more than a broadband or smooth sound. It, it's, it's more noticeable. And so that's why tones tend to be uh, tend to be regulated. They t and in North America, they tend to be regulated on on a third octave band basis, very similar to what you uh, what what you're seeing in, in in New York. That 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 kind of analysis or or whatnot would um, would not be unusual. I, I will say that generally, when you look at a wind turbine uh, vendor spec sheet that comes from the IEC 61400-11 test. Right again, alphabet soup of of things. But when you look at their data, you tend not to see uh, third octave band tones. So, so if I if I can jump in there a little bit, so Commissioner, so in New York, their sound standard is forty five decibels dBA at a home, at a non participating home, and then you've got that component that's also written in. However, if there's a tonal component, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but and Mark, jump in if I if I'm misparaphrasing, but if there's a tonal component to the sound coming from the wind turbine, then you'd take a five decibel penalty. So it'd be 40 instead of 45. And I think what Mark's just describing, and I, you know, Commissioner, I've worked on well over 100 projects across North America and well over probably 20 plus different turbines. And I've never seen that tonal component or that penalty be applied. We often see it in some regulations, but when then, and it's there to protect on the, you know, if there was a tonal component, it doesn't tend to be from wind turbines. Where my experience, and again, Mark, please jump in, my experience where that tonal issue comes in on a renewable project, and then you do get the penalty, is in the substation. Often you will get the substation noise and it can be tonal. You'll get that the sort of hum from the substation, which is a prominent sound. And so instead of allowing it to be 45, let's say, at the home from that sound source, it would have to be 40 at the home. Is that fair to say? Sub-transformers can have a hum characteristic in certain circumstances that may be considered tonal. But whether, but whether it, the, the, the tonal component's written in, very rarely do we ever see it being exercised and needed for the wind turbine sound because they just simply aren't tonal in nature. It's there because it's it's part of their sound stuff for many other sources that, that you know, if there's a tonal component, subtract five, and we just don't see it for the turbines, but it is there. So typically, in all of the projects that have been permitted in New York in the last, I'd say, five, seven, eight years that we've worked on and others have worked on, um, none of them have had that tonal component applied to the turbines. It's a 45 decibel at the home. Okay, a, a general question. So if you were the king of the world, and I have the ability to make that happen, are there things that um, X company that's going to come in and look at turbines could do regardless of expense, are there things that can be done to lower any of the 
sounds, audible, inaudible, from coming from the turbines. So the the technology that is that is out there um, is is really what is kind of becoming a default, and that is. Um, well, we call, there's a couple of different trade names for it. Um, it's, it can be low noise trailing edge. Uh, it could be uh, serrated trailing edges, but they're basically blade modifications to the trailing edge of the blade. Because again, it's the blade that has the has the aerodynamic source and is the dominant source. So there's a variety of treatments that they can apply to the blades that result in a measurable uh, decrease in, in sound level. So I think that that would be kind of the predominant uh, noise uh, modification to, to, the, to the physical infrastructure that, that you see. And but that, I think five years ago, Commissioner, that five years ago that was technology that you had to pay extra for as, as a turbine uh, purchaser. Now we pretty much see that universally by all of the wind turbine manufacturers as being, that's the base model, right? So, you know, it used to be that if you wanted an automatic car, you paid more than the standard, and now it's hard, it's almost impossible to find a standard. Same kind of concept. Now, they, all the companies are competing against each other to have lower noise turbines, and it's become standard practice. So the technology is constantly being upgraded? I would say that there is an understanding that sound is a key exciting consideration and the various turbine vendors are working on a variety of technologies primarily looking at how to reduce the aerodynamic noise from the blades mm -hmm. and so they all have their various flavor of uh, of blade modification, there there are variations on a theme in terms of uh, you will see uh, some triangular additions to the trailing edge of a blade that kind of help uh, reduce uh, the sound level because of various complex aeroacoustic phenomena. Um, so that uh, and and I do think that we're seeing. Uh, that become more standardized and kind of a standard offering. You still have the option to be looking at a, a blade without that, um, but many are offering it, and sometimes that's their default offering. And so, you know, that would it would not be considered optional at that point. The, the optional would be if you wanted that not added. Uh, so, so it, it certainly is. So outside uh, of what the the turbine manufacturer offers you, are there any ways in terms of its operation? So for example, as, as you know, wind speed goes up to a certain level and blades begin to feather, that caps out. Can, can you operate a turbine in different ways, irregardless of efficiency, to produce a lower sound? You can control how the ramp up and ramp down and with wind speed occurs uh, basically by adjusting the feathering and adjusting the uh, or the pitch as they would call it and adjusting uh, the RPM so if you want to and there'd be various trade names for for those types of systems but you certainly can alter the operation is that uh, software or? It, yeah it, software. It, it would be a a control logic control. that would be uh, that would be deployed, and so you can have these um, these tools that would 
adjust the turbine operations. Um, it will typically reduce the power output in terms of electrical power output, but those are there are control logics that can be that can be deployed. But I think, Commissioners, the key is for you folks to pick a sound level that you think is appropriate for the protection of health, safety, and your citizens. And then, and that, and then allow the turbines to figure out how they're going to meet that, right? Because the key is, is that get the right sound level, and whether they have to be in a noise reduction mode or serrated blades or any of the other things, the key is setting those ground rules. What do you want to see as the appropriate sound limit for your community? And then after that, allow the turbine people to figure out if they can meet it or not. We'll make a decision on what we want that number to be at the home, and then let's the developer choose siding and that, equipment choices to make that. that that's right. And then, you know, and to be frank, if you choose a sound level that's too low, it's, a, it's an easy decision. That is, we're not, we as in like pretending I'm a developer, which I'm not, but it, it, developers might say that sound level is too low. We can't meet it. We're going to walk away. We're never going to be able to develop here. And on the other extreme, we still have, and I don't believe in Kansas might still, but I don't think so. There are there are counties out there in the Midwest that'll still have a 60 decibel sound limit. Well, that's inappropriate as well, right? So there's it's finding that spot for you folks in an area that you feel comfortable and, you know, that if you want, because doesn't matter to me whether you bring turbines into the community or not, but if you're wanting that as part of the mix of what the county wants to do, it's picking that sound level that will both protect health and allow it to move forward, but there you can go too low or you can go too high. And so what do you see those, so you've been all over the country and the mm -hmm. world looking at, what do you see the low standard as and the high? So people said, yeah, Commissioner. I mean, th so here in Kansas, I, I, you know, and, and I'll start. With, yeah, and I'll start with Kansas. So, yeah, whatever it was, South Dakota last. No, right, absolutely. So, whatever, but, but any place, I don't sure. Care. If we start with Kansas, the typical county in Kansas with wind operating wind projects for the last twenty years has been fifty decibels at the home of a non-participating home. That's more on the high end frankly, in terms of where, if you look around the country, what uh, noise limits are, we're typically somewhere between 45 and 50 decibels. So if you look at, we were talking about New York before, they have set a 45 decibel sound limit at the homes, not a property lines at the homes. North Dakota recently did a 45 decibel at the home. Minnesota uses 50 decibels at the home, and they have consistently for over 20 years. Um, once you go much below 45 at the home, that's where you're getting into challenges of being able to site projects. So it's, you know, the, so the practical reality of having 70,000 turbines around the U.S., the practical experience that we have, somewhere between 45 and 50 tends to be that range that we see at homes that works well. Where are we in Europe? Europe, it depends on the country in Europe. There's no uh, universal standard. Um, some countries are in that 43, 45 decibel range. Others can be down as low as 40. So, you know, there are, there are, and there are areas of the world where you do get 40 decibels is the standard on the lower end of the range. You'd certainly, if you go below 40 decibels, it, it, it becomes very challenging to build a project. Um, the, the difference between some of those models and what we typically see in the U.S. without getting too far into the economics, they will have, as Mark was talking about, noise reduction modes. They will operate a little bit lower, but they're, they're, the way that they're paid or compensated for the, the, the projects is a lot different than we have in North America. So, But yeah, typical, typical U.S., whether it's a state or county level regulations, 45 to 50 decibels at the home. I have uh, two more questions on sound. We've got... Uh, coming up on a half an hour left, and we've got a few other things. So I don't want to shut it off if 
But <clears throat> two other questions. One, thinking about the nature of sound and how different sound sources compound um, and are heard. Um, I'm trying to think about the right way to ask this question. If I have an, an ambient environment that's um, 45 decibels and I have another source out there somewhere that's operating at 50 decibels, um, what's, what is the effective impact of that as, as I hear it? Is it, it's not 90, it's... Yeah, so decibel math is logarithmic math. Okay. And it's, because of that, it's a little bit complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, two ways to think about it simply is when two sound levels are 10 decibels apart, um, and it doesn't matter if it's 80 and 90, or if it's 30 and 40, when you add those two together, there is no increase. You just get the, it's just the, the louder number. So 30 plus 40 is equal to 40. Okay. 50 plus 60 is equal to 60. The other extreme. Every math teacher in the world. <laughs> it just, just, yeah. Shuddering. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, uh, except for those who teach logs. <laughs> the great 10 math teachers are loving this 20 right plus now. 30 is 30. Correct. The higher number. The higher number just yeah, controls. Because right. gotcha. um, the, the, the lower number. And, and the reason for that is, you know, logs are what they're doing is they're, they're comp you're looking at the number of zeros after something. So if you have 100 plus 10, that is basically 100 when you add them together. And that's basically what's happening in, in logs. When you do 20 plus 30, it's, it's of that type of magnitude. There's, a, you know, there, there's that. And then on the other extreme, uh, you have two numbers that are the same. So 50 plus 50, 60 plus 60, you just add three. So well, I'm sitting in my home and I've got a everyday ambient sound around me at 45. Um, how far away from that home does a turbine operating normally need to be for there to be zero impact, for it to not be heard? For it not, for it not to be heard. So audibility is a challenging topic to give an answer to like that because audibility... You can't use dB to determine audibility? Audibility depends, mere audibility depends on many factors because what you're looking at there is, is masking. Uh, and, and masking is a complex phenomenon because of the way our ears respond to different frequencies, tones, and, and whatnot. Um, so we, that is one reason why we often don't see audibility used as a criteria because it is... It is really the only thing that matters well, it, it, as in terms of so, human experience. So, so but, it, but not really, Commissioner, and let me try to explain why. All right. um, so and frankly, there is no... There's no regulation anywhere that I'm aware of where inaudibility for wind turbine or any other noise source of this that. is that. So, so hear me out. So if you want to go down that road that, that falls into that category, you just don't want a project, that's fine if that's what the county decides. Hang on, hey, but, please don't go there. Oh, no, 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 please don't go there. I'm not talking about projects. I've got a, a, a science question in front yeah, of you. Please no, don't take it there. No, but Commissioner, the reason, I apologize, but what I meant by that, maybe it was being a little too flippant. What I'm saying is if you're trying to get to that criteria of inaudibility, 
there, you, couldn't, you couldn't get there and still be able to site a single turbine anywhere. In, in, in North America. That's now, the answer to the, that's and, that's a straight answer to the question. Yeah. That's what I needed to and, and absolutely, no, absolutely. That's that's why I apologize if I was being flippant because I was saying that's the case. But in terms of the that it's the only thing, in fact when we look at all of the studies that we've done over the world, actually noise is one of the, the even though we would think it would be the driving criteria of people's desire to either be around a project or not, it doesn't tend to be the driving factor. Um, the driving factors of people, you know, after projects are built, when projects are built, and after I'm we do those studies. You, I'm going to ask you again, but, again, as I teed this up in the very beginning, we're not here to talk about no, sorry, the regs. Sorry, but the turbine, in terms of you, you asked about, that's the only thing that matters. In fact, what matters more, in fact, is the blinking lights at night for people living around turbines. That's why, you know, the state has just passed, Kansas has just passed the ADLS radar thing. I've, I'm a huge proponent of that. Right. One of the things to keep communities and people happier is things like that. Those are ways that if you did want to have turbines anywhere, those are some of the things that can help for communities. Kind of considered a standard. It'll be yeah, there. absolutely, 100%. So is there anything else on sound? I do want to get into Flickr and Glint for a minute. If you want to speak on sound a little bit. All right. You'd mentioned Flickr and Glint last night, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I've got a couple questions around that. If I define, tell me if this is accurate, uh, Flickr is the product of uh, shadow um, from uh, the other side of a rotating blade. Glint is the opposite of that. It's reflection off of the surface of the blade. Um, That's right. And, and that... For the most part, yes, Commissioner. The the thing with Glint, and you'll see almost in every um, regulation out there, and if it's not, you know, the, you have to have a certain color paint for the turbines, because Glint actually is not a concern for turbine blades because of the way that they're painted. So they're specifically paint. That's why they have that kind of grayish, you know, lightish, whitey gray color, is specifically to so that you don't have Glint as being a problem. Yeah. So you you don't know of any issues with Flickr and Glint being a, a health uh, or a problem for people? So, so sorry, let me, let's back up. For Glint, what I'm saying is that it doesn't actually occur. Um, it was something that was early on you'd see in regulations because of the way that they're painted. In terms of Shadow Flickr, Shadow Flickr is, you know, from a health perspective, no. Um, where we started with the Shadow Flickr is first back in the sort of late 90s into the early 2000s, people were concerned that the flickering that you get from the shadow flicker would be fast enough to cause what we call people who are, there's a subset of epileptics. Yes, yeah, so there's a subset. 2.5 hertz is the, above that is where? About three, yeah, about three hertz. And so what you, what you get is that we were concerned that, well, those smaller, older turbines spun a lot faster than the bigger, modern turbines. And, you know, it was right about the same time where the Japanese cartoons were coming out that were flashing real quick on TV that were causing some kids to seizure. So there was two researchers, um, you know, very world prominent researchers in the UK, uh, Dr. Smedley and Dr. Harding, who did that photosensitive epilepsy research. Again, any of these papers we can provide you folks, but they were the ones back in, I believe it would have been you know, around 2009 to 12 um, that published that quite simply the blades don't spin fast enough in the modern turbines to be a concern for photoepilepsy. Um, other concerns that have been you know, brought up and that we've been researching over the years are again, things like headaches, um, you know, other just prolonged, you know, 
vision issues, others, things like that. People say that, you know, potentially they're worried about being dizzy around the turbines. Again, when you look at the studies done, uh, and then, you know, how much flicker to cause annoyance or nuisance in individuals. And when we see in, you know, studies done in Canada, here in the U.S. by the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, the quite simply, you know, Shadow flicker doesn't tend to be a challenge with people living around turbines, whether it's you know health concerns that are raised or even nuisance or annoyance complaints. Um, it certainly was, I'd say, back around 2010. The shadow flicker videos that you tend to see on the internet, they're real. And that flickering in the home is real. And candidly, that's when we were sighting turbines too close to people's homes, potentially. And we'd put five turbines to the east at 1,000 feet and five turbines to the west at 1,000 feet. And we'd have hundred, hundreds, of, hundreds of hours of shadow flicker in somebody's home who's not being paid to participate, it's too much. Yeah. And so the, the standard has become typically 30, no more than 30 hours. And even then, most people won't come anywhere near that in a project area. It would be much less, if at all. Are you aware of any technology-based solutions, software uh, solutions that can um, help control the operation of towers that would reduce or eliminate flicker on any given location? Yeah, I mean, certainly all of the manufacturers, at least the major manufacturers that I'm aware of, certainly have that software. And the reason that software was designed originally, whether it be in Europe or here in North America, was to meet that 30-hour uh, shadow flicker limit. That was the initial um, design for that software, because as turbines got bigger, then you could have more hours of shadow flicker. And so typically what happened was you can program the turbines to shut off during those times of shadow flicker when we know that it's going to occur. And that again was designed so that you could meet a 30-hour limit um, typically around North America so that anything above that, so if Mark's, you know, let's say Mark's modeling a project anywhere, and let's say he has five homes, it's not uncommon to see five, ten homes maybe, that would be over that 30-hour threshold if that was the threshold set by the county. And then what you do is for those five homes is that you would make sure which are the turbines, what day, you could actually get to the day, time of year. It's just math. And it is. It's simple physics, you know, turbine here, sun there, yep. and they could shut them down over 30 hours. And that allows to make sure that you can meet those, whatever, whatever threshold the county sets, that you can meet it. It's 30 hours per year. 30 hours per year. That's pretty much the universal standard. Again, if you look at states that have codified it, again, you know, look at New York, North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, others, tends to be no more than 30 hours a year is the allowable limit. But you can, you can, through that technology, you can make it whatever you want it to be. You can, and Commissioner, that's more of, again, a discussion about, you know, what does this county want to see and whether or not that works for a developer. And as far as I, you're, you're absolutely right. You could, you could make it zero at a house. Um, and then it becomes a, if you do that, is that an economic thing? That's, that's for people who want to try to build these projects, not for me. Um, the one thing that I would say in terms of shadow flicker is that it really is at the house. It is, sh shadow flicker does not occur as you're standing outside on the property. It's just a lazy shadow that's coming and casting across the ground. It's not the same as being in the house. It's the house that we're trying to protect so that when you're sitting in your, in your you know, in the, your kitchen in the morning, it tends to be early in the morning if you've got turbines to the east, late in the evening, if you got turbines to the west, you want to make sure that it's not flickering too often while they're having breakfast or, or enjoying a drink. Yeah. Uh, so, so if you had homes directly east or west, mm -hmm. right, sunset, um, the wind turbine could be adjusted for those houses specifically. So in the in the you know CUP, we would say you know these houses should not be affected. You know, essentially, 
that's possible to do that at that le- at that level at the turbine level. Yeah, certainly, Commissioner, you can actually you know let's say you had like, an imaginary project of fifty turbines, and let's say you had. 200 homes around those turbines and let's say you you wanted to say for you know a limit of no more than 30 hours and then you know this home had 50 hours then shut it down to there quite frankly if you wanted to say zero home for all homes the technology exists to shut down the turbines individual turbines at different times of the year so for this house it might be tuesday march 10th and on this house it's you know february 12th that we got to do that for and Absolutely, and, they, and the, uh, the sensors are also there so that the turbine knows if it's a cloudy day or not, yeah. right? Because if it's a cloudy day, you're not going to have shadow flicker. So that's where, you know, it's kind of a combination of all those. And how, how um, and this would be based on a model. You would do a model before the project to determine... This guy does. I'll let, I'll let him speak to the model. Like, like how, so, like, how, um, how effective is that model going to be? Like, what if the model doesn't capture certain... I mean, is it... Like, you know, how robust is the model? Because everything's going to be dependent on that model, right? Yeah, so, well, and, and it's, it's, it's just math and physics because it's really, you know, we, we know from astronomical models how the sun travels on the horizon uh, every day of the year. So that's input into it. The precise turbine locations are put into it. The blade dimensions are put into it. So um, it's it's sub- kind of a it's subject area is also put in right. For- yeah, yeah. And then you and then you put that in your receptors, and you can get as detailed as to where are the windows located, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's the, the models are 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 good engineering models that, that are kind of relied on around the world. I see. Yeah. And they, they assume the house is essentially a greenhouse. So as Mark said, you could go and say, well, the windows are here, here, and there. They, they essentially model the house if it's a greenhouse. So if there's shadow cast on it, flickers cast on it. If I have a home office that faces the wind turbine, I could you know, say, I don't want any shadow flicker because I'm going to be working there all day. You know, that level of yeah. granularity. And, and, and uh, yeah, absolutely, Commissioner. And often what we'll see, very rarely do we, like, so let's say if you went with a 30-hour limit, that's fairly typical. Very rarely do we have anyone um, complaining over that. In the event that that happens, so often what you'll see is, you know, responsible developers will say that, you know, if we do get complaints, regardless of a complaint, I'm sure you're going to have a complaint resolution process if you don't already. You should, if you don't have one um, in your regulation. But usually what will happen, let's say somebody, let's say yourself, you know, more people are working at home now post-pandemic, whatever reason, and you're in your home office and, you know, the flippant response would be shut your blinds. I don't want to shut your blinds when you're doing that. If let's say it's yeah. becoming a problem, you go and you typically would stop into the operations and maintenance building. You talk to the the manager of the site. They'll often run it up the flagpole that you know, well we we want to do something for this neighbor, and then that's where often it'll get worked out even before it would ever come to county commission. Um, in my experiences, that you know. Yeah, Fred's got an issue with, he doesn't like the shadow flicker in his house, the way his bay window sits, it's driving him. You know, and it's very rare, but yeah, usually those can be handled on a one-off by individuals. Um, and we don't often see it over 30 hours. I'd say if you put 100 or 200 hours in there, you'd have everybody in the community complaining and you'd be going one by one. So putting a, putting a limit, whatever limit you folks choose, again, standard tends to be 30 across the US and North America. And then individual complaints and response. Just as a personal aside so what what you're talking about is from a person's home mm-hmm. is where you're measuring 
I have a farm, and my whole property is where I work, where I live, where I do things. And for me personally, uh, to say, Charlie, we're only going to measure it your home uh, doesn't feel quite right to me. Yeah, and so has that run has that been an issue in other places? So Charlie, I come from a long line of dairy farmers north of north of Toronto, okay? And so I understand what you're saying, right? You know, spend time on the farm, you you know, you're outside all day, you're in you're in the shed, you're driving around the the combine, the the, the thresh or whatever have you. Um, why we do it at the house is what I was trying to describe before. The actual flickering is only when the shadow gets cast over the window and then you get a flickering of the light inside the room. When you're outside, that phenomenon doesn't happen. You know, would you potentially notice it? When I've been on, on farms with shadow shadowing on the ground, like outside, you, you don't notice it as a flickering in the, you see it basically the, the turbine and the shadow casting on the ground. So it's, it's not the same as what it would be in the house. So if you were on your property, um, would you notice it? Would you, you know, oh yeah, look, the, the turbine's casting a shadow today because I happen to be out there, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon, it's over to the west. Yeah, but it, it's not one that causes concern. It's one we don't hear from farmers later on or those outdoors. It, it really is for inside the house. It's not the same as if you're driving by a, a series of trees and you know that flickering you get when the sun's going through the trees as you're driving down the road. It's not the same from a turbine, it's just the shadow. It's more equivalent to a silo in the shadow, but it's just a lazy shadow casting on the ground. Do you, uh, anything else on? Just one, one thing, uh, in terms of the times of day, is it primarily sunrise and sunset when shadow flicker tends to be an issue? Is that, I mean, like what, what are the hours of the day when it, it, it's most prominent? It, it will vary depending on the geometry, right? Because it's an astronomical kind of model, but it tends to be uh, when the sun is low in the horizon. So either uh, sunrise or sunset is when you have the highest probability. So, yeah, if you, if you think about it, like if my coffee cup here was the turbine and <coughs> owns the house, as the sun's coming up over the rock, that's where you're getting the shadow there. Gotcha. And it's up here. But, you know, it can occur through different times of day, but for most homes, it'll be either in the morning or the evening. I see. It's just the, the length of the shadow yeah. tends to be longer during that time period, so right. that you have a larger I see. probability of being encountering a structure or, you know, your, your receptor. But it's... A good question, though. Is Kevin's issue in Allentown, was it Glint? He talked about the constant. Yeah, but was it, was it from Glint? I don't remember now. I thought it was Glint. All right. Never mind. We, we had uh, visited at a, at a location where um, someone reported um, what I remembered to be Glint as a source of headaches and causing them not to be able to work from where they were, but. Uh, I, I imagine, were they in like a, in a building? Mm -hmm. I imagine it would probably be Shadow Flicker Commissioner just, just because, you know, I, I would, just because the Shadow Flicker would occur inside that building, right. not the Glen. Fair enough. But you should check back in with him. Yeah, I will, thank you. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, okay, to move on from this, um, are, are either of you gentlemen um, able to speak with uh, you know some expertise or background on subjects on environment animal impacts animal I, I could deal with uh, that type of thing uh, water and soils 
not to those ones in terms of the animal stuff that I could deal with is livestock and the four-legged the deer and, the, and like that but the no I don't believe that we're I'm not it's okay uh, that, yeah I, I'm certainly not going to speak on birds and everything else the spot was something that, no we could deal with livestock and you know in the four-legged mammals but that's about it all right um, if that's the case what I'd like and, and I'm sure somebody would be happy to come back you could get experts there are a lot of experts out there on, on birds and bats and all of that um, one comment um, here, and I, well, I just want to be careful here. I, we're, we're not open for public <laughs> questions, so I want to I want to draw the line there. If we can't understand, or understand. Um, you talked about uh, having some uh, knowledge of livestock and mm -hmm. how shadow and flicker can be can impact um, large livestock. Is there any? No, there's not. I mean, in, you know, this is, I'll give you both anecdotal and then I'll give you some hard facts. If you actually go around a uh, wind project in the summertime when it's hot out, you're going to find the cattle that are going to follow, they're going to follow the tower shadow around and be standing underneath it just as a cooling That's area. a whole different subject. But, but, no, no, but, but, so, so, right? but Commissioner, you're asking about shadowing and, and livestock. Oh, I'm asking about flicker. So, so they don't experience flicker, right? So the, the livestock are outside. They don't experience flicker, they're experiencing the shadowing. And in terms of the, you know, do, do cattle, um, you know, experience issues around the turbines for shouting? No. I mean, you've got 70,000 turbines in the U.S., vast majority on agricultural land. Texas has the largest number of turbines than any state, and almost every one of those turbines is in cattle ranch country, They're, and they are not affecting the cattle. Okay. Appreciate that. Um, one thing we didn't talk about, um, and maybe goes to audibility and, and it goes to um, other aspects of sound and how it affects people. Um, ambient noise is generally a constant, you know, wind can come up and down, there could be other things that, that can blow into it, but the sound coming from a turbine is definitely not constant. Agree with that? Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, I mean, there's times where the wind's blowing and the turbines are spinning. There's times where they're not. So yes, it's well, not it's not a 24-hour day, seven-day a week. If they're doing the thing they were built for, then they're going to be spinning, and the sound coming from that's yeah. going to have some oscillating or pulse-like effect. Well, I'll let I'll merge. How, how how should we think about that differently than the impact from ambient sound, just constant sound? So uh, first, I would say that ambient sound uh, will vary. I mean, it is it, ambient sound is also variable, and 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 so it will vary based on time of day. It will vary based on a number of a number of factors, location, uh, meteorological conditions, and whatnot. So there there is no necessarily a fixed ambient number either. Uh, the sound from a wind turbine uh, can have a, a swishing characteristic as the blade rotates, right? And I'm sure you've, if you, I'm sure you've seen or heard heard that yourself, right? Uh, that tends to be um, on the order of a rise and fall of around, you know, varies a little bit, but on, uh, around three decibels or so, uh, as you, and it is generally. Um, more pronounced or 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 more audible the closer you are to the turbine right so when you're when you're very close to it you'll definitely pick up on the blade rotation as you get further and further away and there you're picking up sounds from from multiple turbines you're picking up sounds from from the ambient as well uh, that can 
can get diminished, uh, so it's not as as um, uh, it's not as prominent, not yet prominent or, or, or noticeable as when you're, you know, if you're standing directly under it and the blade is passing right over your head, it's pretty, you know, that can be uh, one set of experiences. As you get further and further away at kind of more typical setback distances, uh, it, it can tend to blend with with the other with the other turbines and, and whatnot as well. But it it just blends in. Yeah, and I, and I think you know you'll. If you haven't been out to see or hear it, you, you will, and you'll you'll notice that that uh, something along that 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 line of uh, phenomena or, or masking or however you want to characterize it. And it also depends on how windy the day is as well, right? So you know, with the if it's a really windy day, you're going to hear a lot. In, depending if you're standing right on the turbine, of course you're going to hear the turbine, but you're going to hear a lot of that wind's going to be in the background in your ears as you're also potentially hearing the turbines too. So the times that you hear turbines the most is when it's real windy at the hub. So it's really windy at the top of the turbine where the blades are spinning, and it's a really low ground wind speed. You know where it's almost like dead calm. You're like, how are the turbines spinning? That you know those days. That's when you hear it the most. You know, at further distances. Two more questions. Three more questions for me. Um, is there any impact on air pressure from the presence of turbines in an area? Not, not, not that I'm aware of. I don't. I don't know where you're. I don't it, know what the nature of that, but uh, certainly not from a health perspective. I mean, you, you hear the people say there's pulsating, you know, airwaves. There's no. I mean, it's the. It is the acoustical signature that we're picking up. That's the one we're trying to limit. Okay. I wonder. It makes me wonder now. Gave the example of you've got one window open in your car and you've got that, that kind of pulsing. But that's a very different phenomenon than what we're talking about when we're talking about wind turbines and, and being outside. Wouldn't necessarily change air pressure in general. No. You know, not, that, not that I'm at, yeah. uh, at the airport differently, but it, it no. could have a local impact. Not that I'm aware of, okay. Commissioner. I mean, it's the, it's the blade passing the towers where you're hearing that whooshing sound. That's not a pulsing of, of last, energy. Last line of thought that I, I wanted to hear from you on um, is uh, on the subject of annoyance. Yep. Now, I, I go to Webster and I look at that. It, it gives a very different definition than, than maybe the way it's used in this industry. Can you give us your idea of your definition of what annoyance means in this industry? Sure, absolutely, Commissioner. And, and just to point out, so Mr. Bastash and I uh, published a paper at a conference two years ago, specifically on the topic of annoyance and living around turbines. The term annoyance, when we're dealing with noise, there's actually an ISO standard. So there's an actual standard that was created, not because of turbines, but when we look at any noise source and we're starting to ask people how they feel about that noise source, we start asking about health effects and everything else. We tend to ask on a scale of one to five, how annoyed were you with that sound over the last year? last month, last day. And then people will respond either, you know, zero, didn't even hear it, don't care, or, you know, I was actually up to five where I was highly annoyed, or I am highly annoyed by the sound. And so that is a subjective question that we ask. In the event that we're in a noise source, and it, and it happened for turbines, when those questionnaires first started coming out back in the 2000s, maybe up to the late 2008, 9, 10, what we were seeing is that, you know, give or take somewhere around 10 to 15 percent, depending on where you were in the world, most of these studies started in Europe, uh, people reported being annoyed living around turbines because of the noise, or just the being annoyed. Sorry, now I'm just eating the microphone. Um, so then what do you do from there? Well, 
if you have unchecked annoyance and you don't then ask the medical questions after, annoyance, we say it, it's the first step along a potential pathway to things like sleep disturbance, heart disease, and other things for noise. So for example, whether you're dealing with airport noise and we ask about annoyance there, or we're dealing with turbine noise, or we're dealing with gas-fired plant or a coal plant, it was, it was higher than what we would have expected in background of you know less than 10% of people being annoyed. That's why all these sleep studies have been done. That's why all the medical studies and questionnaires and you know stress tests and all the other things that have been done for people. So we know that what we have is that there are people living around turbines that are gonna report being highly annoyed. It tends to be somewhere in that 10 to 15% of the population will report that. When you look and you then go deeper into the statistics with all those questions that you've asked those folks, only about 10% of that annoyance is actually attributable to the sound itself. Much higher, and it's not to trivialize it, but much higher of when we tease out what that annoyance is really related to, it's what we call visual cue and attitude. It's I don't want to see those things on the landscape. And, and I'm, not I'm not dismissing that. I'm just saying when we do this, it tends to be more, the annoyance is more related to I don't want those things on the landscape. I don't like looking at them. I don't want to look at them. And the attitude side, what I mean by that is that it's usually people who had started with, you know, a project was announced in their community and from day one they were, no, I do not want my project there and then the project was built. So imagine anything you didn't want to have happen in your life and then it happens anyway and you feel that it's out of your control, yeah, that's where the annoyance comes from. So we are still within sort of a reasonable background of annoyance that we have from any change in the environment. But that said, what Mark and I put in our paper, and, and Mark, please jump in, is that don't regulate the sound level hoping that you're gonna change the annoyance level. You regulate the sound level down to 30, you're still gonna have people saying, I don't wanna look at them, I don't want them in my community. And that's not to trivialize it. So often when I say it's, it's the discussion by the community at large is that you, does the community want to have, and the elected officials and appointed officials like yourselves, do you want to have that type of thing in your community? Because you know you could set all the regulations that there will be some people that will be unhappy no matter what decision you come to, so that's where you know we try to control it from a making sure the people aren't going to get sick, make sure the people aren't going to get hurt, make sure that if a, if a project or a regulation comes in that you're protecting for that. We cannot simply protect the and tell you that oh everybody's going to be happy after it just it just won't be well happy happy is different than annoying happy is different than the the real physical things that can be associated with annoyance and I do understand that. Right, Both the and that's why we've done those medical studies to say that, you know, we're, we were worried that those things could, stress is the first one, yeah. and then, you know, and that cascade along that effect, and what I'm saying is that when we look at that part two, if we had have just left it, if I was talking to you folks back in around 2011 or so, we only had the annoyance piece, we didn't have all the rest of it. The Canadians hadn't studied it, the Australians, the Americans, you know, just hadn't studied it yet. So I'd be sitting here saying, we need studies to make sure that that annoyance doesn't lead to those cascading effects. I think I can confidently sit here in 2023 and say, those studies consistently around the world, regardless of where they've been conducted, come to the same finding. Is that yes, you're gonna have some people that are annoyed living around turbines, not to trivialize it, but that annoyance has not then led to stress, sleep disturbance, and the like. And it's the latter that I'm talking about. I understand that. I understand the first part of that. It's it's the re, the, the very real, physical things that can manifest as a result of that. I'm gonna break my own rule here as we get to the end. At the as I, my thought is that 
wouldn't we then, knowing that to be real, do what we can inside regulations to minimize those things that continually, like a flicker, that continually say, yep, I'm here, yep, I'm here, yep, I'm here. Yeah, and so, I, again, I just want to be clear in terms of the could physically manifest, is that was the fear before, what we're seeing is that even with those people who are reporting the annoyance, we're not actually seeing the elevated stress level sleep disturbance. But back then, to your point, Commissioner, but absolutely, those are community choices. You folks have a, a choice to make as a community. And that's where, when if you want to regulate shadow flicker to zero hours at the house, that's a call for you folks, and then it's up to the industry to figure out if they can make it or not. What I would suggest, though, is don't over-regulate to the point where, you know, if you, if you simply as a community, and I, I don't mean you folks, but as what I always tell communities, if you don't want, you know, in this case, turbines coming to your community, don't set regulations to like, you know, exclude them. Just say, we don't want turbines here. When you're setting the regulations, make sure you're protecting public health and safety, the setback distances you need for physical sure. safety, sure. the noise, the shadow flicker. It, Commissioner, if you, you know, I would tell you, in my opinion, 30 hours of shadow flicker is a reasonable amount. You may disagree with that, and you folks may choose to go a different route. What I would urge you to do is not, for example, put zero hours of shadow flicker on a property line because it just quite simply doesn't occur outside. Pick a noise level that you think would work for your community and your folks, and you know, and that if you do want projects coming in, that it's it's something that would be there. If you try to set a 35 decibel settlement. You're just not going to approach it. That's okay, too, if you wanted to do that. But knowing that you're trying to protect public health and safety. Awesome. I, and I know I opened the door to it. So, But thank no. you. I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate the opinion. Um, we're at three minutes before. Is there anything else before we, we wrap? Just one last question, Chris. So you mentioned that um, you, from a distance you can hear the wind turbine on, you know, if the conditions are a certain way on a certain day. Um, what is that reasonable distance? Like, how far away could you hear it? on that day that you know that you were describing like how far away is that i mean you'll have people uh, mark please jump in too because mark, mark spent a lot of time monitoring these things over the years i spent a lot of time just all over north america you know standing outside of projects anywhere i go oh let's go listen to you're certainly more than a mile in some cases depending on the weather conditions to, to hear those turbines that's why we say audibility is not a good criteria because what we're when you usually set that sound limit what we're trying to do in any sound limit rules that we're setting is to make sure that people do get a good night's sleep and that's what we're trying to protect against so if you're let's say 50 decibels at the house or 45 decibels at the house even with the windows open in the middle of the summer you've got about a 15 decibel drop into the bedroom so a 45 decibel outside with the windows open is like 30 inside and that's that's what we're trying to do and protect and that's where if you look at you know international regulations because we, we know you know an idiotic response would be oh shut the windows and turn the air conditioning on you're not telling people how to live their lives maybe they may not have an air conditioner i'm well aware of that too right you want you don't want to have to, you're not trying to tell the neighbors this is how they have to live their life because this is what we're going to put in and so you know audibility though yeah i mean we we Candidly, years ago, I'd have developers going into communities telling people, oh, you'll never hear them, or they'll sound like your dishwasher. First of all, your dishwasher, if you guys have a dishwasher that was built in the last couple of years, you can't hear the thing anyway if you're saying, you know, I got to put my, so that used to be if you had an old dishwasher, an old fridge in the 70s. When we were kids, yeah, you could hear those things, hum. They don't anymore. That's a dumb analogy. Um, you don't, you don't tell people they're not going to hear them. Could they hear them community? Yeah, but once you're set back far enough, once you're in that kind of 45, 50 decibel range, you're not gonna really hear them in the house. Will you hear them on the property? You might, 
and it depends on how close you are and, and the like. So anybody that tells you that if you're going to live in and around a wind project, you never hear them, they're, they're just plain wrong. So it's the question is, what is that reasonable sound limit? And we see across the Midwest, typically 45 to 50 decibels at the house. And I know we're going to close. I don't know how late you guys stayed last night and answered yeah. questions. I see a, another uh, next era person back here that was at the table and. <laughs> well, when you all said that you were focusing on experts and you weren't talking to us as a project, it wasn't appropriate. So, so I don't know if you are willing to stay around and. Up. Absolutely. I, I answer questions here. I think 11 o'clock, yeah. though, is... Uh, yeah. We, we, yeah, we could stick idea. around until okay. about noon or so, um, you know, absolutely, to, to answer questions. You know, this is what we do, right? We answer people's questions. So, you know, we're happy to talk to anybody. Okay. Mark and I, at least. I don't know, but... Yeah, and we stayed last night until there were no more... Yeah, we, we stayed until everybody's questions were done. I mean, we, we were literally the last people in the building. Okay. Talked to a lot of nice folks. Um, so, well, sure. I want to. I want great idea, Charlie. Great idea. I want to thank you for giving up this time today, you um, taking and answering some questions that are very important to us as we think through what we're responsibility that we have to our community and to the to the industry. So, yeah, and absolutely, commissioners, and thank you for having us. Um, you know, there's a lot out there. I mean, if you guys are going through information or you want us to send you anything. Please feel free to reach out. I mean, we'll leave our contact. And you know, if you're, you know, Charlie, if you're going through something, you know, this, or what's your opinion? We're happy to do that. Um, I'm not going to send you a thousand papers tomorrow. But if there is stuff that you'd like, you know, like that German infrasound study or something, we're happy to provide that to you. Absolutely. Will you leave a card? Yeah, yeah for sure. Oh, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Make sure, and we'll make sure staff has our contact details. That's around. Thank you all. Thank you so much. Thanks, Commissioner. Thank, Thank you all who've come here to listen today. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. I got a card here from somewhere. And we'll make sure. Can you always contact me and I can find these people or others?